Um, tonight we're in First Thessalonians chapter 5, and I want to read you verse 24. It says, The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The one who calls you, that's Jesus. That's God our Father who has called each one of us, and he is faithful. Tonight, as we sing, we're going to be singing a number of songs that talk about the faithfulness of God. So I encourage you to be encouraged that our God is faithful. He's a good God, and there is no one that compares with him. So if you're able, I invite you to stand, and let's worship our faithful God.
to be in your presence, to be refreshed, to be strengthened, to be renewed with hope, and to be reminded of your faithfulness, of your goodness to us, and how you always keep your promises.
Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we continue our journey through God's Word and slow down a little bit, take a look at uh, these passages. Um, really want to encourage you to get involved with the things that are happening, especially with our Harvest Fair. Um, next Thursday we'll have the meeting. We're going to do it a little bit different, so uh, it, it's not going to be um, as big as what we had done before, but it's definitely going to be intentional with that. And so I want to encourage you that. And then also just a reminder um, for next gen, we got our books in for Experiencing God. So those will be, uh, we'll be starting that on the first. And then lastly, if you've never gone through an organized uh, discipleship, like what does it really mean to be a believer in Christ? Um, the New Believers class is actually a, um, it's a series of three studies of discipleship. And so it's, it's synchronized discipleship. And it's really cool to take you systematically through um, the foundations of faith and what does it really mean to be a believer in Christ. So I would encourage you to, to get plugged in with that. But tonight we're going to be picking up where we left off last week with Paul encouraging the church. The church of Thessalonica and, and the Macedonian church was really a, a premier church. They, they had a great heart. Um, they're in Asia and as they were in a time of affliction, and Paul didn't have a lot of time with them because of the persecutions that were going on, he got run out of town and ended up going to Berea and then on to Corinth with that. And so uh, he, had, he was concerned how the church was doing and, and if they were still doing. So he sent Timothy back to get kind of a 411 about what is going on with the church that is there. Timothy comes back, gives him reports, and, and so he's answering this letter is, after Timothy has come back, given a report on the church, and so, so Paul is kind of answering some questions. So as we go through these topics, it doesn't seem like there's much introduction within the topic. It's because Timothy brought the question, and so Paul is answering the question. Does that make sense? So he's answering the question within the letter. So the readers of this letter have asked the question to tell us, well, did we miss the perusa? Did we miss the, the rapture? And so we covered that. Last week, picking up from verses 13 to 18, and now Paul moves into the day of the Lord. 
And their question here in chapter 5, the second part of their question is, well, if we didn't miss that, then, and Paul explains that, then what's the day of the Lord about? Well, the day of the Lord is after the rapture of the church, and it's a period of time between the rapture and the second coming. I've got a, a slide that I want to share with you. This is courtesy of uh, Dr. John Wex, who was a pastor here, and I had the privilege of sitting underneath him in seminary in a class, and this is actually a slide from from one of my classes that's there that he put together. So you can see a timeline of the ages, and, and this was in our Revelation class. But, but we have is, the time of Israel in Daniel 69 weeks, which takes place all the way up to the, the birth of the church with Jesus and coming in. So then we end up in what we call the church age. The church age is where Daniel's 69th week stops and it goes into a pause, and there's one seven-week period that's still yet to be had. Now, in order to be able to go all the way through that, you're going to have to stick around long enough to be in the book of Revelation when we get there. So, Lord willing, we'll be there next year. But within that, understand that tribulation period, as we covered it in our slides last week, that it's a seven-year period divided in two three-and-a-half-year periods, right, within that. But it's a seven-year period in totality. That tribulation piece covers Revelation 4 through 19. So if you want to do a little bit of light reading tonight, go home and read Revelation 4 through 19. That'll, that'll get you there. And then you're going to have more questions than you can ever imagine. Or you can come on Wednesday morning at Men's Study at 5.30 because we're doing that. We are in the book of Revelation and we are in the church's piece right now. So here in about, oh, probably about four or five weeks, we're going to be at Revelation 4 and pick that up. At any rate, Daniel's 70th week, or the last seven-year period, is the tribulation period. Now, if you notice, there is a curved arrow and a down arrow. The curved arrow that goes up is the parousa. That is the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, all the way through, it's 13 on. So we... And we covered that last week within that 13 to 18. The day of the Lord begins at the rapture. And it will continue all the way through the white throne judgment. Why? Because the day of the Lord is the specific time where the judgment of the earth and the wrath of God is being poured out. Now, it's important to understand that. Because when we study the Bible, God is a God of order. And one of the things that's important to study about uh, eschatology, both in Daniel and in Revelation, it's in a timeline. And the book of Revelation actually is a timeline. So if you were to take a look at this, in the section of the church would be Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, 4, and 5 is the event of the rapture of the church where after 3, we get raptured up, 4 and 5 begins... And also 19, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's happening in heaven. On earth, all hell is breaking loose. It's the day of the Lord that is there. It's important that you understand this, because as Paul answers their question on the day of the Lord, it answers the question why the pre-tribulation rapture makes sense. And because he gives us all of that information, because they're like, okay, well, if the rapture's happening... Tell us about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a Jewish term, and we're going to unpack that quite a bit. It's the final judgment. The day of the Lord was first brought up 
by the prophet Amos. In Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, it says this, Alas, you are longing for the day of the Lord. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? Remember, he's talking to Israel. It will be darkness and not light. As a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home, leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom and no brightness in it at all? The first mention of the day of the Lord is judgment. It, it is not a good thing. And so people are concerned about that because they're concerned about when that comes. It goes on, and there are many passages by the prophets in the Old Testament of the day of the Lord. But the most pronounced is probably Joel chapter 1. And you can read the whole account of the day of the Lord, chapter 1, verses 15, if you're taking notes, all the way to chapter 2, 11. But I'm just going to take the first two verses of chapter 2. He says this, Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there again be after it in the many generations. The day of the Lord. It begins with a trumpet. So at the rapture, there's this, this trumpet sound where the believers go home, but it also inaugurates the day of the Lord that begins this tribulation period. It is throughout Scripture a terrible day of darkness, of wailing, of cruel judgment. It's... it's really unknown to anyone when it's going to happen, when it's going to take place. That day of the Lord reveals the sovereignty of God over all creation within that. He brings His judgment within that. So it's with great fear and trembling, especially the readers of this passage, knowing the historical data. The other thing that's interesting too, when you study the day of the Lord, it never has to be explained they just know it is. They know it's a bad thing within this. It would be similar if I said, well, tomorrow is World War III, right? I don't have to explain it. You know it would be bad. And, and your mind just goes there. So in Paul's first letter to Thessalonians, he's assuring them that the day hasn't come. Why? Because of the amount of persecution they were going through. They were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. They were being persecuted by the Jews that were following Paul. They were being persecuted all over the place, this church was. And so they thought, this has got to be the day of the Lord. Did we miss the rapture? Did we miss this? And so that's why he assures them that, no, you didn't miss the rapture. And this is really what the day of the Lord is going to be, and we are not there yet. When we understand this, that the day of the Lord is the wrath, and God promises that the church believers will not experience the wrath of God. He says that in the intro in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 10, where he says this, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who, note, rescues us from what? The wrath to come. And tonight we're going to read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Very clear. So if the day of the Lord is the wrath of God upon the earth, is the church going to be there? The answer is what? No. And so we've got to understand that, which, which gives us everything that we need to, to put together. So Paul is encouraging the believers in this. He is not writing the First Thessalonians to try to plain, explain eschatology or the, the end things. He's writing this letter to encourage them. So he doesn't go into great detail with this. Other than just giving them what they need to know to be encouraged that no, you didn't miss the rapture and no, the day of the Lord isn't here yet. So we need to read through chapter 5. We're going to get through that. We're also going to get some clues in a couple weeks when we go through Second uh, Thessalonians. That's going to give us a little bit more clue about the tribulation period and, and what has to happen for that. But tonight we'll be in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says this in verses 1 through 3. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. So he, start, he goes there. So we've got, to follow, we've got to follow the way the text reads. The word now is, is a word peri. And it means it's a transition. So, so Paul is finished with the section on the rapture. And he says now, or peri, now we're going to talk about the day of the Lord. So it's a hard break. When you're studying the Bible, look for those hard breaks by the author. So he gives us this hard break, peri, or now, we're going to introduce the next topic. Moving from the parousa to the day of the Lord, which are two different events. And so, again, he's, he's answering this question. He says, now, as to the times and the epics. Well, times and epics, or times and seasons, it's important to understand that too. The word time there is chronos. And chronos in Greek, means an indefinite amount of time. It, it basically is this period of time. So, it, so it's a very broad period of time. Where karyos, or epics, is a point of a particular event. So he says, now, as to the period and the events, brethren, we don't have to, we don't have to explain this to you, we... There's nothing to be written to you. For you yourselves know, which implies that there has already been some instruction concerning the day of the Lord. There are, we are in what we would call today the end times. These are the end times. Are we the end times period? We're in the church age approaching these end times. Now there's going to come a, a, a time when this church age ends. And then the next period begins. And that would be the tribulation period. Seven years. And then when that period ends, or that space ends, then we enter into what's called the thousand-year reign of Jesus. When Jesus comes for His second advent. The Perusa is not His second advent. When He returns, Revelation chapter 19, that's His second advent. You follow? Because He comes to earth. Because he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives and splits it in two. And a river flows from the throne of God on, the Mount, on, on Mount Moriah and flows through the Mount of Olives down into Jordan, restores all of the land and makes the Dead Sea fresh again. If you were here when we studied that in Ezekiel. 
That's all that. That's when he comes back. That's his second advent. He came as a, as a baby and as a lamb, and he comes back as a lion. So the Perusa is not his second coming. But in preparation of that, the, the period from when the church is pulled out is the day of the Lord, because that is all ushering that in. And then the epic or the event is his second advent. Do you follow? So within that, he doesn't want people to be confused with that or unaware or caught by surprise. In verse 2-3, he says, You know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And so within this, it's good, people are going to be caught unaware. Who? Who's caught unaware? If the church and the believers are gone, who's caught unaware? Unbelievers. The unbelievers are caught unaware. The believers not caught by surprise for two reasons. One, they've already been informed by the Word of God. And second, they're not here. They're raptured. So who's caught unaware? The atheist. The one that has denied God. The one that denies the existence of God. How should So within this, what he's trying to do is encourage him. If we know we're not going to be here in the day of the Lord, we know we're not going to be here in the wrath, but we're still here now, how should we live in the amount of time that we have? Which he's going to cover in the back half of Thessalonians 5. So what he's saying is don't worry and get all wrapped around the axle about when you're going to get raptured. Don't worry about the day of the Lord because it's not pertinent to you. What you need to worry about is how you're living now until the Lord takes you home. That's what you need to worry about. The other stuff will take care of itself because God's got it. Now, he says it's going to come like a thief in the night. Does that sound familiar? It should because Jesus spoke of it. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 43, it's a rather long passage, but you can follow along. He said, but of that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And on the day of Noah entered the ark, they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two men in the field, one will be taken, one will be left, two men will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, be on alert, you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. So what is he saying? He says, those that don't know are going to be caught unaware. It's interesting about how Jesus uses the, the reference to Noah. Who knew that the flood was coming? Noah. How do we know Noah knew a flood was coming? He built an ark for a hundred years and witnessed to people. He was told. Now, he didn't know the day that the flood would begin, but he knew it was coming. And God had provided a way for him to be taken out of the flood. And the flood came 
Rains came. He went into the ark. Door was shut. And the people on the outside were begging. Why? Because they were caught unaware. But were they told? Yes. But they were still caught unaware. Because they didn't believe. And it was too late. Peter's teaching about the day of the Lord says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed in intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is not a fun thing. Now, if God hasn't appointed his church under wrath and he said that, we're not going to be here. But the day of the Lord is going to come in such a way that it is going to be catastrophic events, as in Revelation chapter 4 all the way to chapter 19. So what does he say? To the church. Don't let your guard down. Does the church today live in such a way that at any time they can be taken out? Are they living with the intention of the imminent calling home to be with God? Does the church live today and evangelize today to their loved ones and to the community to try to keep them from having to go through the day of the Lord and the judgment so that they'll accept the Lord and enter into heaven and avoid that whole mess? No. Why? Because we've become complacent. We don't believe it to be real. We've settled. We've fallen asleep. We need to take this serious. We're more or less the opposite of what the Thessalonian church is. The Thessalonians thought it came because of persecution and they missed it. The church is like, ah, that's not going to happen for my lifetime. If Jesus was to return and call you home today, which loved ones would you leave here on earth because they don't know the Lord and you haven't shared with them? Now again, their salvation is not dependent upon you. But do we really live like these are the last days? We should. And if we know the season, and we do, when we see countries like Russia and China getting all buddy-buddy, it's starting to get a little scary. These days are coming. So therefore, we need to witness. We need to preach that destruction is coming. We need to preach that judgment is coming. And we need to understand that God is going to bring that judgment on the unbeliever and the unbelievers never going to see it coming. And so Paul is writing to them, look at you yourselves know that that day is coming just like a thief in the night. And what's the condition of the world? Verse 3, they're going to say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them suddenly like a woman in labor pains, sudden destruction. Well, what does that mean? And and this peace and safety. Well, within this, Jeremiah would say this in Jeremiah 6:14. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. In the Roman Empire during this day, there was a thing called Pax Romana. Are you familiar with it? Pax Romana was this idea that Rome was, the Roman Empire, they, were, they had peace. But how did Rome really have peace? Was it real peace or fake peace? It was fake peace. It was fake peace that Rome had because of how mean they were. Everybody was terrified of them. And so it was peace and safety. 
When you study Daniel and you study the horns of Daniel and the little horn that speaks great things and the Antichrist, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, one of the things that you find out, especially when you study the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6, is that the first horseman comes, comes on a white horse with a bow with no arrows. You ever read that? Catch that? Comes with a bow with no arrows. Why? Because he brings peace to the earth, but he doesn't use a weapon. He's a man of military, but he speaks great peace within that. And he's going to usher in some kind of peace accord that is there. And so what's going to happen is, in this day, in this day, what's going to happen is, the world is going to say, Everything is good. Everything is at peace. The economy is doing so great right now. And you look at it and you go, what planet are you on? Because this demonic deception that goes around that gets everybody to believe that there is peace. We've got Israel and we've got Jordan and we've got Palestine and we've got Iran and they're all shaking hands and they're all doing well. No one's ever brought peace to the Middle East or, or had the Abraham Accord and some of these other things. We are seeing things happen in our lifetime that's amazing. That's setting up for the atheist to say we don't need God because man has brought peace on earth. And so the world is going to be saying peace and safety and they're going to let their guard down. I don't need... God, I don't need to believe in Jesus. I don't need, there is no end of the world. It's never going to end. It's going to get better. We're making the world a better place. We're saving the world. We're saving the planet and all of these different things. And then sudden destruction will come within this. Note, he says, like labor pains, they will not escape. Now, some would say, well, does the labor pains mean that that it's going to hurt. No. In context, what he's saying is, when the real labor starts, you're not stopping it. My wife has had children. My, my daughters have had children. You that have had children. When the real deal comes, is there any stopping it? Is there any pause button? Nope. You're in it for the ride. You're in it until you're done. And that's what Paul's saying. Like a woman in labor, once this thing starts, there is no stopping it. When the day of the Lord begins, it will run its full course within this. And those that don't know God are going to be caught in destruction. Who are the ones that go through this again? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Dealing out retribution, note... To those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. If you are a believer here today and you are terrified about having to go through the tribulation and experience the wrath of God, this is why pre-wrath and, and post-trib positions don't work. Because by definition, the day of the Lord is the wrath of God being poured out. And we've been saved, we've been put into Christ unto salvation and unto life. And so within this, we see that that is beginning. 
Paul goes on in verses 4 through 11. If we know this, and we do, then how should we live? Because remember, Paul is writing to a church. He's trying to get the church to wake up, not be terrified and not be so fixated on, on this day of the Lord. You know, it's interesting. There are so many people that get so fixated on the day of the Lord, and they're so fixated on eschatology and end times that they don't evangelize. All they do is listen to this teacher about end times and this teacher about end times and this teacher about end times and this teacher about end times. And they're not fixated on what the mission is. What's the mission? Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the mission within this evangelism. But he says this to them and, and to us. He says this in verses 4 through 6. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. Why? Because it's going to come like a thief in the night. But that's not going to happen to you because you're different, that the day would take you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do. But let us be an alert and sober. So the first thing he says is you're not in darkness. So don't be afraid. Don't get all worked up. Don't have this, this great anxiety and panic attack. God's given us the plan through his word. Don't be easily shaken. You're not going to go through the wrath of God. You okay with that? I am. <laughs> I mean... You don't want to go through it. And so he says this very clearly. There are only two kinds of people. Those that are in light. Those that are in darkness. There are no grays in God's economy. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. You don't have to worry. And because of the rapture removes those that are in the light from the earth, leaves the unbeliever in the earth for judgment and destruction. And so that's why, again, he reiterates, you're not going to go through this. It's not going to catch you unaware like it will the rest of the world. Now, you say, great. I'm not going to go through the wrath of God. I'm not going to go through the tribulation. Jesus says, I'm gonna, he's going to take me out. I'm going to... I don't have to worry about anything. There is no accountability for anything I do because I'm guaranteed a one-way ticket up. Is that right? Is that proper thinking? Nope, it isn't. It's important to note that the rapture does not remove you from accountability for your actions. We will all stand before Jesus and give an account for our life, what we do in this body. It is not a judgment unto salvation, but it still is a judgment of works and a reward within that where we have to give an account for everything that's there and done in our life. And so we need to know that we, we will have to stand before Jesus. Luke twenty one thirty six says, But keep on alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He's very clear. Yes, pray that you, you, you'll be ready. Pray you're on alert. Pray you're ready to go. And know that you're still going to stand before Jesus. You're still going to give an account. 
there are those people that would take eternal security to the nth degree. That, that God had predestined me unto salvation, and there's, there's absolutely nothing that I can do, that God made that choice for me, that I, I have no part in it, so I can do whatever I want to do. Is, is that an abuse of that doctrine? Absolutely it is. Absolutely. Because you're sons of the light and sons of the day, you need not to live like the sons of the darkness or the sons of the night. You think about what happens in darkness and night. Good things or bad things? Bad things. Is darkness ever illustrated in Scripture as being positive? No, it isn't. It used to be in the world, all the bad things happened at night. Now, I just saw on the news today a mom like at Minnesota. Minnesota, at like 10.30 in the afternoon, she got carjacked with her son. 10.30 in the afternoon in a small town. I'm like, are you kidding me? The, the sin has gotten so bad that they're not even waiting for the night. They just do it. And, and during the day, broad daylight, they're going to go in and they're going to smash and grab jewelry stores and all these other things. And there's no accountability. It's recklessness that's in there. They're going to steal. But, but in the illustration, in the darkness is a place where people sin, they steal, they commit all kinds of evil deeds. Why? Because the darkness hides their actions. And in the demonic realm, darkness always describes demonic behavior within that. And even when we talk, take a look at final judgment, it's outer what? Outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth within this. But Paul says, and Jesus says, you are children of the light. And that there is, if, the, if the light is in you, there is no darkness at all because there's none in him. Jesus would say in John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to him and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will what? Not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's a distinction. You're either in darkness or you're in light. You're, you're, you're in sin and, and away from Jesus or you're in Christ and trying to live your life out of sin, but within that. But believers know that coming in the day and it won't overtake them. It's interesting that word overtake means to ambush. When you break it down, it, it literally means to ambush. Which is a really cool idea. If I really study the Word of God and I know the Word of God and I have confidence in the Word of God, Satan can't ambush me. He can't sneak up on me. Why? Because I know what he's going to do. And then I can defend myself with the armor of God, as, he'll, as Paul will get into a little bit later. So that day's not going to ambush you. It's not going to catch you unaware. If Jesus was to come back in five minutes and call you home, are you ready to go? Yeah. Tomorrow, when you're about your business, doing whatever you're doing, and Jesus came back, would he catch you doing something that you shouldn't be doing? It's always kind of, kind of, you know, you go, wow, okay. Yeah, and I, I've shared this, you know, story before, but it's it's something that when I used to live in Southern California, I used to drive from Huntington Beach to Whittier on Beach Boulevard. So if you're familiar with the area, you know it's a Beach Boulevard runs all the way from the beach, all the way up to the mountains. It was about a 40, 45 minute drive. And so as you drive Beach Boulevard, you cross the five freeway and you go through Stanton, and in Stanton, 
they had um, a theater. It was called the Pussycat Theater. Right? And it was right on Beach Boulevard, and everybody knew it was there. And, and I used to get a kick, whether I was going or coming, I used to get a kick driving by, and I'd get over in the lane right next to it. And if there was anybody that was there at buying tickets to go into the theater, I'd drive by, and I'd honk my horn and wave at them really, really big. And they would just like, oh, who saw me? Who's honking at me? And I always thought, that's kind of fun. You ought to try that once in a while with some people. See what it'll do. Catch them doing something they're not supposed to be doing. But for the believer, we should not be caught unaware. We should live in the light and not live in the grace. And as he says, and not to sleep. Not to be caught asleep. As the remaining ones, as he, as he was said, those that are left behind. Mark chapter 13, verses 32-37 says this. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels or the Son of Father. So this is Mark's account. Take heed and keep on alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man on a journey, who upon leaving his house, putting his slaves in charge, assigns to each one his task, also commands the doorkeeper to stay in alert, Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows in the morning, and in case he should come suddenly and find you, what? Asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Don't let your guard down. Keep your eyes looking up. As he goes on, verses 7 through 11, for those that sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those get drunk, they drunk at night. But we're children of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet and the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, here he says it again, but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, meaning alive or dead, we will live together with him, referring back to chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. So again, Paul reinforces this idea of being alert and ready. As I said on Sunday, this place is not your home. Don't get attached to it. It's all going to burn. It's amazing as a firefighter how fast I watch things burn and go away. Instantaneously. Fire doubles every minute. And I can watch a whole house go up. You imagine what God does when He brings the inferno to this place. The we there is interesting in verse 8. He says, but since we... This is an interesting we. If you take notes, this we is an inclusive we... Which means, I, Paul, with you, and it's in the emphatic tense. It's kind of like he's yelling at them. He says, but since we, it's this emphasis that is there. We are this people of the day. How should we live? Productive. Question. Did Paul believe that Jesus was going to come back in his day and in his time? Yes. How do we know that? One, he preached it. Two, he lived it. He was driven. 
He was driven to share the gospel with as many people as he can at all costs to himself. Why? Because he believed that Jesus was going to come back at any moment. And now 2,000 years later, we're like, well, he hasn't come back. Maybe it's going to be another 2,000 years. Maybe we can just slough off. Do you know why God's waiting? He's waiting for that last person to come to faith. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. No man knows the day or the hour. And in my sanctified imagination, Gabriel, Michael, or one of the other angels are up there tallying up the names, and they're like, okay, check, okay, check, okay, check. When that last person that's going to be saved gets saved, we're out of here. I want to find out who that last person is. Because we're going to have a little talk. (laughs) But how are they going to hear unless they have a preacher? How are they going to hear unless somebody shares? How are they going to know? Now again, you are not in charge of somebody's salvation. That is not what you have to do. But you do have to share. God takes the seed of faith, the Word of God, that you plant, and the Holy Spirit is the one that gives the increase. The Holy Spirit is the one that, that gives that fruit. But you've got to plant it. We think about Operation Christmas Child, and they had a, a great packing day. Do you realize how many seeds of faith and the Word of God that goes out in that operation? You think of Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse and how many seeds go out in these devastating times. You think about all the missionaries that are planting those seeds throughout the whole world. And God, in His sovereign knowledge, is waiting For that time and place when that last one, that last one, comes to faith. And then he'll say to Jesus, now you can go. Go get him. Bring him home. And so the children of light stay alert. They stay ready. And what are they doing? Sitting on the couch, doing nothing? No. Armor of God. The... Keepers of the kingdom fair. We taught the kids this VBS, the armor of God. Paul brings it up here. You put on the armor of God and you fight the battle, the spiritual battle. And you remain self-controlled. No soldier gets entangled in the world's affairs and gets ambushed by the enemy because he knows what he needs to do. And you live that life of self-control. Why? Because you want to be count worthy. Now understand again in verse 9, The believer is saved from the destined wrath to come. And it's because we're in Christ. And those who have died for us so far, we awake and sleep. We want to live together. We want to be reunited together. But keep in mind, it isn't something you do. It isn't something that we do on our own. We need to understand that... that that to be saved from the wrath of come, to come, we have to be put into Christ. And God gives us that, that hope. Romans 5.9 says this, Much more than having now been justified as blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God to come. Again, the hearers, the readers of this letter, what are they worried about? Going through judgment. Paul again says, you're not going to go through it. But you do have to fight. And again, deal with this this retribution that that is taking place and this hope as he said in 1 8 
It's dealing out, and I brought this verse up again, it's dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. Is Paul making it clear? You're not going to go through the wrath. But he wants, to under, he wants us to under salvation hope. And it is. Those, Jesus who died for us so that whether we are alive or dead, we will live with him forever. Guaranteed. For those that would challenge eternal security, they've got to deal with these verses. And this verse is very clear. That you are secure in Christ. Why? Because by God's Spirit and by faith, you've been placed into Christ. And once you're placed into Christ, you cannot be pulled out of Christ within that. And so he finalizes this with this section and says, Therefore, have I preached to you long enough? Encourage one another with these words. When someone's becoming downcast or feeling depressed or anxiety or all these other things, he says, encourage one another and build up one another as you were doing to encourage them. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God's got you. And if He's got you and He promises not to take you through the wrath to come, but He's going to take you out, does He have your daily needs? Yes, absolutely. His final words, verses 12 through 22, are this. Paul is uh, really short on words in this last section. He gives what's called imperatives. These are some things. So these are final words as he's finishing up this letter. He says, okay, I've got some things i got to do. Knowing all of this, knowing all of this, how should you live right now within this? And he starts out with verses 12 and 13. Honor your leaders. Look at what he says. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in, such, in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. So we have in here these, these imperatives that are given to us. In this faith community, what is he saying to them? He says, you in this faith community recognize the people that are working hard on your behalf for you spiritually. There are a couple of classes that are, of people that are there. These are leaders that, in three of them specifically, these three phrases come together. One, recognize the leaders that work hard for you. These are the teachers that, and the leaders that work hard. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders that rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work, note, hard at preaching and teaching within this. The, the word karyo means to exert strenuous physical effort. Work hard at recognizing the teachers that are there for you, that are working hard on your behalf. Secondly, work hard at recognizing the leaders who are leading you. It's interesting because the word here for leading is the word that stands before. It's the idea of a shepherd or a caregiver. So you got the ones that are working hard over the Word to teach. And then you have the ones that are working hard that are not only working hard to teach, but that are shepherding you and leading you. And a shepherd is one that gets out in front and nurtures and takes care. 
And then the third class is work hard at recognizing the leaders who are admonishing you. It's interesting because that word in, in Greek is nuthoteo, and, it, and it, it, we get our word nuthetic from. It's, it's the type of counseling. If you, if you do nuthetic counseling, you're counseling people just from Scripture. So you're teaching them. It's nuthetic counseling. So the idea of, of, of nuthetic teaching is, is, is that same thing. But the word there is used for admonishing. So it's the idea of teaching and correcting. Now, most people are okay in coming to church and being taught God's Word. And most people are okay in having a pastor that is coming and leading them and standing in the gap for them. What most people are not okay with is when the pastor says, you're in sin. What you're doing is an offense to God. You're violating your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. And you need to repent. Whoa, people go nuts. And they say, the pastor was mean to me. I'm leaving that church. But understand, a good shepherd leader studies God's Word to feed the sheep. A good shepherd leader is going to be out front guiding the sheep and protecting the sheep. And a good shepherd leader is going to correct the sheep and admonish them. We live in a world today where no one wants to be corrected anymore. True? No one wants to be corrected. It's not my fault. And if you tell me it's my fault, I'm going to go someplace else and find somebody that will tell me it's not my fault. I'm going to blame it on everybody else but, but me. And I'm not going to take ownership. And so Paul says, <clears throat> how should you live? In the congregation, recognize your spiritual leaders, the ones that work hard, to teach you, the ones that are out front to lead you, the ones that work hard at admonishing you and telling the truth. In other words, respect the office because he's doing the work. Now, it's interesting because he uses the word among you. Hear me clearly. Paul is saying respect the one that is working hard among you. Just because someone has the title pastor or reverend or whatever, if they're not working hard to feed you, if they're not working hard to lead you, and if they're not speaking truth into your life to correct you, they don't deserve your respect. Because they are not serving you. The shepherd leader position or the pastor teacher position that Paul talks about in here is one that earns the respect because they are the ones working hard, not just showing up for a paycheck. Pastoral ministry is not a job for a paycheck. It's a lifestyle. And it is the biblical servant and the biblical leader, the ethos of a true biblical servant and a biblical leader is observable. If they're not doing it, they don't deserve the respect and they don't reserve the honor because they're not working hard. The other aspect that he brings in the congregational life is live in peace with one another. Why? Because I can tell you this from being a pastor for many, many years, lots of times the sheep 
bite the shepherd. The sheep make life hard on the shepherd because the sheep are always fighting with other sheep. So he says, if you want to honor your leaders, get along with one another. Don't make their life hard. Church divisions, church splits, church arguing, and all of these other things. When we are so close to the Lord coming, are pointless. So he says, love one another. And that way you're not making it hard on your pastor. Please. Okay, are we good? The second thing, he says, promote healthy living. Look at verses 14 and 15. But we urge you, brethren, admonish unruly and encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak and be patient with everyone. And see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seeks after that which is good for one another and for all the people. So dovetailing off, how do I live in a way that I get along with everybody? Well, you apply verses 14 and 15 that are here. And the first thing he says is warn those who are idle. Living at peace requires a personal involvement of exhorting one another to living a proper holy life. And and that same word is to admonish. So you get to admonish other people about their behavior, their attitude. The word atakos or idle is not just laziness. It actually translates to something that is unruly or insubordinate. So what Paul is saying to the congregation is not only are the leaders to do their job in admonishing the congregation, but the congregation is to do a job to admonish the congregation. If you find somebody that's living unruly, you go to them and you say, hey, look, you know, your behavior is kind of unruly. It's not right. You're gossiping or you're lying or you're slandering or you're stealing or you're committing adultery or whatever these things in. It's this word atakos is to live out of order. It is also laziness. Second Thessalonians chapter three, six and uh, verses 10 through 11. Paul deals with this again. He says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every note brother who leads an unruly, there's that same word again, unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Verses 10 and 11, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. What is Paul saying? Police yourself. And if you find people that are lazy, that are not working, they don't eat. They don't eat. They're not working. What are they doing? They're going around gossiping and spending time on concerned citizens of Columbia County and all the other things that they're doing. Get a job. Well, you know, I don't know. They're just lazy. Don't help lazy people. Don't help lazy people. They're busybodies. What do you do? You admonish them. You correct them. Why? Because you want to see them do well. You don't want them to be a burden on the, on the church. 
But here's the other side of the coin. Encourage the timid, help the weak, and be patient to all men. Are there some people that fall on hard times where they need help? Yes. Are there some people that because of maybe trauma or difficulties in their life, they're having a hard time getting things going? What should you do? Help them. So Paul tempers this and he says, don't help the lazy person, but be patient. And if somebody really genuinely needs help, what should you do? Help them. Help them. And so you've got to temper it. And he says, be patient to all men, which means not being quick to judge. This idea of, of weak is lacking in the strength or the physical ability or, or different things that are going on that they just can't tell. And, and then he goes on and he says, and, and within the body, avoid retaliation. No one repays evil for evil, but seek good for others. But Paul says in the body, if someone hurts you, don't hurt them back. You know, I, I grew up in a really rough neighborhood in East L.A. and, and with rough friends and not a thing. And, and it was embedded in me that if you do something to me, I'm going to do it back and I'm going to do it twice as much. That, that kind of went into practical joking. If you ask my family whenever they would play a practical joke on me, I would warn them. I'd say, you, do you really want to do this? Because it's, it's not going to go well for you. And they learned really quick, don't play practical jokes on, on Dad because he'll, he'll mess you up. But that's not the biblical way to respond. Don't repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. Why? Because that's what God did for you. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, says this, But God commanded, demonstrated His own love towards us. In that note, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did God repay evil for evil? No. He gave you good for your evil. So that you could become good within that. 16 to 18 moves on now to worship. The 16 to 18 is a great passage on worship and personal worship. It says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ. It's pretty simple. Rejoice always. Which means maintain an inward attitude of joy in all things. What does grumbling and complaining do for you? It robs you of joy. Question. Can you grumble and complain and worship God in the same, in the same mindset? No. It's impossible. So if you're grumbling and complaining about stuff, you're not worshiping. So what should you do? Stop grumbling and complaining. Rejoice always in all things. Because bitterness will ruin you. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31-32, it says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Note, to what extent? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. A congregation that is grumbling and complaining tarnishes the witness of the church. And it creates an atmosphere of darkness. I have seen and been part of and seen Christians that walk around like they're, and they look like they're sucking on lemons. 
I kid you not, it's almost like, you know, sometimes there's a basket of lemons cut in half in wedges out to the front door, and they come by and they go, how's your day going? Fine. What's going on with you? Horrible things. You're not going to believe what happened to me. You're not going to believe this. It's like, ooh. Paul says, put it away. Just put it away. Why? Because as long as you're bitter and you're in that place, you can't worship the Lord. Rejoice always in all circumstances. You say, well, how can I rejoice when my loved one dies? You're not rejoicing because of the circumstances. You're choosing to rejoice in the circumstance. And that's a big, big difference. You're not allowing circumstances to drive you. And it goes on with praying. It says pray without ceasing. Praying, it's, a, it's a present tense imperative. It means do this continually out of prayer. Okay, Carrie, you said to pray without ceasing. How am I going to drive on Highway 30 with my eyes closed? Don't. But praying without ceasing means that you're in a continual state of worship and prayer and the presence of God in all aspects, all the time in your life. It's having this open communication. Jesus is always on the line with you. You're praying always in all circumstances. Philippians 4, 6-7 says this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication... With thanksgiving, there it is again, rejoicing, let your request, your request be made to know God. And notice the promise. If you do the first, don't be anxious, but by prayer give everything to God. If you do that first, the promise is the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard. And that word guard is garrison your heart and your mind. If you don't have peace, you're remaining anxious. And then third, give thanks in everything. It's interesting because that, that word for give thanks is eucharisto. It's this idea of being thankful for all of these things. Now remember, you're not thankful for the circumstances. You're thankful in the circumstances. That's there. And all three are worship imperatives. Lastly, live a holy life. 19 to the end. Do not quench the Holy Spirit and do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything. Be careful and hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. In other words, he says, live a holy life. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't despise prophetic gifts. Examine everything and stay away from anything that looks evil that's there. What was happening? A lot of people were coming around um, Thessalonica. And they were pretending to be teachers and preachers and all of these things. And so what Paul is saying to them, don't be critical of them and quench the Holy Spirit. You don't know who's coming. You don't know if they're speaking the Word of God in the Spirit or not. So don't be critical and judge them offhand. Be open to what the Holy Spirit... And don't despise the prophetic utterances or the gifts. How many times have you judged somebody out of your own lens, religious lens, worship lens, whatever it is, and were critical to them, and God was using them. Paul says, don't do that. Because you're quenching. Remember, the Holy Spirit came down in Pentecost like what? A flame of fire. 
But if you're out and offhand rejecting somebody because they don't fit your religious preference, you don't know what God wanted to do in that time. But does that mean I have to accept everything? No. All goes on. Verse 21, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. It's the Berean principle, Acts 17, 11. Now, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they accepted the word and then they studied to see if it was so. So, Saturday, we have a prayer time. All the churches are going to gather to prayer out in Scafoos. You should be there from 6 to 8. We're all going to pray. Unite in prayer. Are there going to be different worship practices and all the difference that, that are there? Sure. Yeah. But if my Pentecostal brother, who loves Jesus and is saved, starts praying in, in, in a tongue or something like that, and that's according to his preference, should I look at him and go, oh, you're doing it all wrong? No. No. And if, if my Greek Orthodox brother that loves the Lord but really loves the Orthodox Church does the sign of a cross, oh, what are you doing that for? No. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. But if someone brings something that's not scriptural, literally essential, then examine it and say, well, you know, I'm not going to hang on to that. I'm going to let that one go. We're not called to accept everything. We're not called to reject everything. We should check ourselves, though. Because Paul ends this and he says, check yourself. You refrain from every appearance of evil. You do that. We should be more in tune in judging ourselves before we try to judge others. Matthew chapter 7. Within this. Paul finishes with a benediction. And we'll finish with this. Then we'll have the worship team come up and close us out. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He who will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. And I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul prays blessing for the church. He prays that the whole being, trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit, are presented he says, pray for us, greet everybody, and greet them with a holy kiss. I praise God we don't do that anymore. That's good. We're not bringing it back. Some things are left to stay in that time. But understand, Paul's encouraging us to live in God's grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. And I thank you for how your word makes it so clear on how we should live. Help us to be the church the unified church in Christ, looking for the return of Christ. And until that day, may we preach Christ. May we not be carried away by anxious thoughts or the conditions of this world. Because we know, Lord Jesus, you haven't appointed us unto wrath, but unto salvation. And we thank you for this gift of salvation. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand. All my words fall short I got nothing new How could I express 
in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.